God, we just ask you to draw near to each one of us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being present with us. Thank you for your constant vigilance over the care of your earth, over the care of your people, over the care of the cosmos. Lord, we recognize that without your providential hands, everything would cease to be. Without your work, our lives would be meaningless. It would be a pointless existence if not for you. If not for your kindness that leads us to repentance. If not for your love that lights our souls. How dark this earth would be without you. Lord, it's a dark place. And we cannot even begin to comprehend what you have prevented, what you have protected from, what you have stayed by your hand of power. What could have been without your protection, without your providence, without your mercy to this place. The untold wreckage of what would be without you. Lord, we look to you tonight again, asking you to be with each one of us in this community and be with this community as a whole. Lord, without you, we have no reason to be, no reason to gather, no reason to love one another with the depth and purity that you offer us to be a community, to to bear with one another, to lift each other up, to forgive one another, all the things that the church is called to do. Lord, without you, what purpose would be in it? To what end would we strive? It is you that are our goal, and it is you that is our start, our starting place. We begin and end with you, God. Would you mold us? on that path into the image of Jesus by the power of your spirit, God, so that one day, on a glorious day, we will see you face to face. A vision of you, unobstructed, unclouded, to see you for who you are, to bask in your glory. We thank you that we do not have to wait long as the earth would understand wait long but we've already tasted of that vision we've already had the chance to receive the beginnings the seeds of that because your very spirit dwells with us and in us and among us and so we can say that we have experienced god and we can say that truly and rightly and lord holy spirit draw us further in to Christ. Draw us further into His image, into who He is. Let us think and breathe and live like Him. And Lord, draw us closer to that day where we will be in the presence of the triune God. Perfect community. Perfect hope. Everything that is earthly and worldly and wicked will have passed away because you will have dealt with it. Draw us close to that day, Lord, now that we can be closer now than we have been before of seeing your face, of seeing your goodness, of seeing your holiness. To embrace our Lord. To see Jesus. 
to see his eyes and his body and see his wounds and his scars and see the price in his body that he paid for us. And to be able to embrace him and hold him and see the kindness and goodness of his human face. To see in him a reflection of ourselves that he was so gracious and so willing to accept so that he could be a good high priest for us. For we long to see Jesus our Savior, you our Father. Spirit draws near to that day. Be present tonight. Give us a taste of that vision. We long for it. We live for it. Amen. <clears throat> well, tonight, as always, we're back in Genesis. Feels like always. Yeah, I don't know why. It just feels. I, I, I didn't feel the same way with John, but it feels like we've been in Genesis a long time. We were in John a long time too. Actually, by the end of it, I think it'll be about the same amount of time in both. But it's just a lot of content. But tonight we talk about a a very serious passage. And if you remember where we've been, last week we had this interlude with Isaac, uh, chapter 26, the first part, verses 1 to 33. There was this story of Isaac and who he is and, and this kind of, really, this recapitulation of who he he was like how how he was like his father really and, and we saw the same events like abraham we saw you know the harem scene where where rebecca was taken into a harem uh, of abimelech and then we saw this this well redigging and naming the same places that his father named and we saw that connection but prior to that we had started the jacob cycle and in chapter 25 we got this prophecy about these twins, these twin boys, and what they were going to be like, and what their lives were going to be characterized by. And of course, what it is, is the character of war. That they would be at war with one another, that they would be striving with each other, and that, oddly enough, the older will serve the younger. Right? And this prophecy is the prophecy that that Rebecca received, the oracle that she received from the Lord. That these twins that wrestled in her womb would be at war. And in fact, they're not just twins. They are representative of something. They are two nations in her womb. And we'll come to know those nations as the nations of Israel and Edom later on. But in the book of Genesis, they're still Esau and Jacob. And so these twins are two nations at war and the older will serve the younger. And that's going to define their lives. And so this week, as we finish up chapter 26, go through chapter 27, and then start chapter 28, this next passage, long passage, but it reignites that theme, the theme of the brothers at war, the theme of the twins who just cannot help but be at conflict, that cannot help but be at strife with one another. And now we're going to see it come to a head. And this is really the pinnacle of their war. It is the quintessential uh, fight in their war. Now we saw that Esau despised his birthright and, and sold it to Jacob for lentil stew. 
right? It was meaningless. He despised what was his, the rights of the firstborn, the inheritance, that peace. And tonight we're going to see a similar struggle, but it's going to play out differently, which is the struggle over the blessing. Who's going to receive the blessing of the Father? And that's key. That's key for Jacob and Esau. And of course, we have to remember as we think about this story that most likely, Rebecca's got that oracle in the back of her mind. She remembers it. She thinks about it. She ponders it. But remember, this, this war has engulfed their whole family. Their whole family has been engulfed. And mother and father have chosen sides. Rebecca loves her son Jacob. Isaac loves his son Esau. The whole family is at war with one another. Okay. I named this week God's blessing in flawed vessels. Because this account is going to show that everyone in this family, everyone in this family has a streak of unrighteousness in them. It has this this kind of conflict. Even the man of peace, Isaac, that we talked about last week, when it comes to his family, he cannot escape the conflict that's engulfed him. Right? So, let's start. There's a little intro to the story that surrounds the idea of marriage. Because both the ending and beginning talk about marriage, and by the end of the story, Jacob's sent off to find a, a suitable wife. So this, this theme of marriage and moving forward with your life uh, to the next phase of your life, really, it really uh, bookends this story. So here's where it starts at the end of chapter 26. It says this in verse 34, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So what's interesting about this is Esau, like his father before him, Isaac, gets married at 40. And it says that Isaac got married to Rebekah at 40. Esau, like his dad, is getting married at 40. And he marries two women. Well, what's the most notable feature about these women? Well, they're Hittite. What does that not make them? It makes them not of the lineage of Abraham. They're Canaanites. They're Canaanites. And the definitive feature of the relationship between Esau and these two wives he takes is that they bring grief. They are not what Isaac and Rebekah expected. They are not what they were hoping for. This was not the godly marriage they had envisioned for their their son. It brings them grief. And, And obviously the thing that... At least, in, in, it doesn't say it explicitly, but I think we can all interpret. The thing that brings them grief is because they're foreign. Now, this is not just a, like a racism thing or something like that. What's the most common reality of the fact that they're foreign is that they worship different gods. They have Canaanite gods. They, these wives, are not living in the promises. They're not believing in the promises of the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. These are... Canaanites with Canaanite gods. So that's most likely the thing that brings them such grief. These are are pagans brought into the family. Okay. With that entry note, the story moves on to this. 
Now it came about, when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see, that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And Esau said to Isaac, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old, and I do not know the days of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, we've seen a scene like this. This is similar to Genesis 24, where we saw the deathbed scene of Abraham. He's ensuring a suitable wife for Isaac, all that peace. This seems like a similar idea. And you'll see it throughout the story that there's this kind of, it's almost this impending death for Isaac. Now, if you keep reading in Genesis, he actually lives a lot longer than that. He actually lives considerably longer than that. But oddly enough, he admits it here. I don't know when my, my death is coming. I don't know the day of my death. But he's old. And he's blind. And his faculties are starting to go. He, can't, he doesn't think as quickly. He doesn't feel as good in terms of, I mean, touch. He doesn't feel as well as he wants. We'll find that out in the story, right? Some of his, his body is failing him. But he doesn't know that he's on death's door. He's not sure. But he wants to bless his son. Now, one thing we miss, and it's right here at the outset of this story, right at the beginning, and it's important, is this. We have other deathbed blessing scenes. Jacob does it in chapter 48 of this book. Joseph does it in chapter 50. What typically happens in deathbed blessings that we're missing? What happens is that everyone's entitled to a blessing. When Jacob is dying, who does he call to him? Does he just call Judah? Does he just call Joseph? No, he calls his 12 sons. All of them come because they're all entitled to a blessing. What's odd about what Isaac has done here is he continues the conflict. He does not call Jacob in for a blessing. He calls only Esau. And he says, why? I'm calling you in so that my soul may bless you before I die. This is specifically for Esau. He wants to make sure this blessing is for Esau and Esau alone. That's not typical. That's not typical of the deathbed blessing. All the sons are entitled to some level of blessing. The firstborns may be great. It may be the best. But everyone's entitled to a blessing. The father passes on that blessing to his sons, to his his heirs. But here he's only invited Esau. So, in the conflict, old mama bear hears about it. Rebecca was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Listen, listen to the language of the text. While Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Rebecca, Rebecca's listening, but it's Isaac's son. She's going to say the same thing about Jacob. Jacob is her son. This is a, a pretty deep divide. This is not just... They seem to like one more than the other. This is a a rift in the family. So, 
When Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Interesting. It's interesting because so often we blame Jacob for the deception, but who is the schemer? Who's the planner? It's Rebecca. Rebecca stands behind the plan which actually sounds kind of like who she's been so far in the story. Remember in, in the story of the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah, she, she's out there uh, really, really uh, openly. She's pretty uh, decisive. She's, I don't want to say impulsive, but she's very decisive. She's very determined. And she's, like we saw in that account, she is like Abraham willing to leave her family, leave the safety of her home, and go to a new land and be part of the promise. I mean, she is a good woman. She's the one who's going to be like Abraham. We saw that in Genesis 24. Well, guess what? That can also become a vice. She can become overbearing. She can become scheming. She can become manipulative to make sure that her outcome happens. Just like Isaac, the man of peace, can become passive and let things just happen that shouldn't happen. Like, for example, look at the difference between how Isaac prepared a wife for his son Esau and how Abraham prepared a wife for Isaac. You ever think about that? Abraham made sure Esau had a a wife from the family line. A God-fearer. Isaac didn't offer the same to Esau. No, he let him go marry some Hittite women and never said anything about it. Never stopped the proceeding. It's pretty common that these were arranged marriages in this day and age. That's the standard way of marriage of that day. Where was Isaac in arranging the marriage? Now, that could also speak to Esau's rebelliousness. I'm not saying that. That, that could be a part of it. But Isaac let it happen. So these people, even their, even their virtues, can go astray. They can be used for, for cross-purposes, for dark, in dark ways, right? And so Rebecca is scheming because she wants to make sure what she wants to happen, happens. So she sets the path, the trajectory of Jacob. Okay. Jacob answered his mother, Rebecca, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. And I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. Then I will be a deceiver in his sight, and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Now, Jacob protests. 
Let's be fair in our assessment. He does protest. <laughs> but what's the content of his protest? It's not, hey mom, this is a bad idea. This is wrong. We shouldn't cheat Esau. It's, what if dad finds out? <laughs> what if I get cursed instead of blessed? It's not, hey, this is his blessing. He's my brother. I love him. Let him have it. It's his by right. No, it's, well, what if, what if I get caught and something worse happens to me? He's not concerned about Esau. He protests for his own skin. He doesn't want to lose out on what could still be his if he just lets Esau have the blessing. It's almost like, hey, Mom, if we're going to do this, we've got to make sure it works. Don't forget, you've got to hair me up. I'm a smooth man. I've got to have some hair. Jacob, except for his fear about what's going to happen, he's all in. He's all in on the scheme. It's interesting because Rebecca says, no, no, no. Just, if you get cursed, it's my fault. I will take, a, I will take account of the curse. Which I think we all can recognize is kind of frankly an asinine statement to say. Clearly, that's not how the curse would work. It's not just like transferable or something. And in fact, we know that from this account. Why? Because the blessing's not transferable. That's a key point of the narrative. When we get there, we'll see. If Jacob receives the blessing, Esau has nothing left. There's nothing left for him. Because the blessing is irrevocable. But her point is to make sure that what she wants happens. So she says, don't worry about it, Jacob. Your curse be on me. Just do what I tell you. So he does. So she took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son, Jacob. So Jacob came to his father and said, My father. And Isaac said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please. Sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Now, think about the situation. Like I told you, this is a deathbed scene. It doesn't mean he's on his deathbed, but that's what it's meant to look like. This is a deathbed blessing. His father's old and blind. We are not supposed to look at this like Jacob's a hero. He is deceiving his old, blind, dying father. That's what we're supposed to have as an impression of Jacob in this passage. This is not just a man who, who like, wow, he really loves the blessing and we should all applaud his action. Because he loves that blessing. No. He's deceiving an old, dying, blind man who also happens to be his own father. I don't think we can have the level of disdain for that that their culture would have had disdain for that. You don't do that to your parents. Right? Think about the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father so that it will go well with you in the land. And then when Paul talks about it, he's the first commandment with a promise. It will go well for you. You will live a long life. Paul talks about that in the New Testament. 
Our culture does not understand the concept of honoring parents the way this culture does. This is despicable in their eyes. So, we're there. Think about being in that scene. And Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? And Jacob said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Okay, he's already misleading his father. Now he openly lies to him and invokes God's name to do it. This is like quintessential taking the Lord's name in vain type of action here. Flippantly using God so you can lie your way out of something. Again, Jacob's actions are atrocious. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close. I'm sure at this point, Jacob's got to be like, man, how? I thought he was more blind than this. He's probably sweating at this point. This is probably not as easy as he expected going into it. Clearly, Isaac is suspicious of something. He won't let it go. He keeps asking. Come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him. Isaac felt Jacob and said out loud, the voice is the voice of Jacob. But the hands are the hands of Esau. He's confused. He says, the voice sounds like Jacob, but I'm feeling him. He feels like Esau. He doesn't know. He's, he's at odds. Is this Esau or Jacob? What's going on? He doesn't understand. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. One more time, though, first, before the blessing. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me. Bring me the food, and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate. He also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. Interesting. Hadn't really thought of it. Till now, but it's almost got the reminiscence of a Judas kiss, doesn't it? Yeah, it's got some of those elements, huh? So, Jacob came close and kissed him. And when Isaac smelled the smell of his clothes, way to go, Mama. You, you knew. Rebecca knew. Hey, he'll smell like him. I mean, this is a full, sensual experience, isn't it? He's smelling him. He's touching him. He feels his, his body near to him. He's, I mean, this is, Isaac is really trying to discern who this person is. I mean, that's the level of deceit we're talking about. He smells him. And he says, ah, oh, that's my boy. It smells like him. When he smelled the smell of his garments, Isaac blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the, the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. 
May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. So he's finally convinced this is his son Esau and he gives him a blessing. A blessing that contains that agricultural uh, wealthiness will be his one. That he's going to eat of the good of the land of Canaan. That he will be a master. That, that he will be the leader of this family. He will be the one who, who dominates other peoples. He will be you know, the lord of, of, the, of the area, of the region. And this is interesting because if you think about it, this is not necessarily what we expected for the blessing, is it? Because what should we be thinking of when we think of a blessing? What does Isaac have to pass down? What he has to pass down is the promises. The promises of the land, the seed, and the blessing. And this sounds very different than that. What it kind of makes us think, at least at least it made me think this, is that maybe what he had planned on blessing Esau with wasn't the promises. It was this blessing, agricultural blessing. It was all these good things, but it wasn't the promises. You know, we talked about a couple weeks ago about whether Isaac knew the oracle. Maybe he did. Maybe he knew it and he wasn't offering the promises because he knew the promises belonged to the younger son. And this was just his blessing that he had reserved for his son Esau. And Jacob is so selfish he can't even let that be Esau's. It's interesting to think about. The only line in the whole blessing that sounds like what we've heard from the promises, that sounds like Abraham, is the last line. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. That sounds like from the promises, like Genesis 12. But other than that, this does not sound like the promises. This is something Isaac intended for Esau. But Jacob is the one who receives them. Verse 30. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob. And Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. One thing Isaac is sure of, he was not sure of the identity of who came to him before. He was convinced eventually that it must be Esau. It must have been Esau. He was convinced. 
But one thing that Isaac is unequivocal about, he is sure, is that the blessing will stand. Isaac wasn't like, well, he, he deceived me. Forget that blessing. Let's, let's exit out. I, I cancel it. No. No, see, Isaac understands the power of words. The power of blessing. The power of the human tongue and the power of speech. And particularly, in this case, when it comes to God's speech, the speech of the promises, the speech of blessing. He knows it's irrevocable. What he said will stand. So when Esau heard the words of his father, he, actually the word is, he screamed with anguish, with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Isaac said, Your brother, he's figured it out now, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. (coughs) Then Esau said, (coughs) Is he not rightly named Yaakov? For he has akevd, deceived me, these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And Esau said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? It's heart-wrenching. It's a heart-wrenching story. But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants, and with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what, what's left that I can do, my son? What more can I offer than the fullness of the blessing that I offered to Jacob? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. There's not many stories in Genesis that match the emotion of this story. Match the, the depth of emotion that's explored, that's, that's written about, than what's going on with Esau and Isaac here. Isaac is moved by his weeping, it seems. And so he answers and he says to him, And it's weird because this blessing, he can't take away what he's offered Jacob. So he's thinking about what he can offer left. So he says this, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke. From your neck. What does that sound like? Sounds like Ishmael. 
See, when you watch this line, the unblessed line, the, the non-elect line, the unchosen line, they sound alike. Esau sounds like Ishmael, which sounds like Cain. These lines of people who are the not chosen people, uh, there is a heartbreak there. There is a legitimate pain and grief that comes with that. And in this instance, particularly because human scheming was so clearly at the core of it, was so clearly <clears throat> involved in the, in the deceit, just the outright bald-faced lies that were told to steal this from Esau. And like I said, we, we actually, the language of the blessing we heard was not the language of the promises. What's interesting is we're going to hear that language later. <clears throat> in this passage. We're still going to hear the language of the promises, but it hasn't been said yet. So this is what he has to offer. Just like Ishmael, you're going to be a servant, you're going to be a slave for a while, but one day will come that you'll break the yoke of slavery from your neck and you'll be your own people, a free people. So what does that do to Esau's heart, what he just experienced? So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Again, Esau is a complex figure. He sounds like Ishmael. He's going to live in the wilderness, which was Ishmael's blessing as well. He's going to be away from the fertility of the land. He's going to be nomadic in the desert land. And he's going to break off the yoke of slavery. But what's he sound like here? He sounds like Cain. I will kill my brother for what he's done. For stealing my blessing. Now the days of mourning, he's just speaking figuratively, right? Because Isaac even said, I don't know when I'm going to die. He's not, he's not saying that this day is going to happen tomorrow or something. He's saying, I know it's soon. My father's old. He's blind. He's almost done. And when my father's day has come, so too Jacob's day has come. Right? He's comforting himself with that thought. The thought that brings Esau comfort is the thought of murdering his brothers. Now, that's what he consoles himself to is the thought of murdering his brother. But clearly it escalates as time passes because somehow his mother hears about it. So at some point, he's not just consoling himself with it, he's telling other people his plan. That's the only way she could hear about it. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee to Haran to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Okay, Rebecca's, it's interesting because it seems that she's received at least a distorted report. She's not received the exact words that 
Esau said, because she thinks Esau is going to kill him imminently. Esau's plan is to do this now. And that's why she says the comment about being bereaved of both of them. Why? Well, if he kills Jacob, Jacob's dead. And then what's, what's going to happen to Esau? Well, blood vengeance. Esau will be killed for murdering his brother. So his, her point is to say, I'm going to lose both my sons in one swoop if this happens. But she thinks that Jacob's about to be killed almost immediately. Like, this is a plan he's about to enact. So her thought is, get out of here, Jacob. Go away. Let your brother's anger subside. Let it, let it just be. Let it settle. And you just go away for a few days. If you can just leave for a few days, I'll call you back. Go to my family. Go to Haran, where my family, my brother lives. Go over there, and you'll just be gone a few days. And then I'll get you. I'll send for you. And you can come home once his anger subsides. Now keep that in mind. That's what Rebecca thinks is going to happen. That's Rebecca's plan. So, here's crafty Rebecca. She is crafty. She's smart. She needs to get Jacob out of here because she's worried he's going to be killed immediately. But she knows what just happened. She knows Isaac was just tricked. She knows that Esau knows that most likely they know that Rebecca was involved. So if Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, hey, Esau's going to kill Jacob, how much do you think Isaac and Esau are going to like receive that well? are going to respond well to that. Not very likely. But Rebecca remembers. It just seemed like a side note in our story. Remember where we, be, we, where we began? Oh, Esau married two Hittite women. That seems like an odd note to just throw out there. Well, it prepped us for what's about to happen. Rebecca finds a point of agreement with Isaac, which is not on their sons, Esau and Jacob. The point of agreement is, we can't stand these wives. And I've got to get Jacob out of here. What can I do? What can I say that will prompt Isaac to send Jacob away? Well, let's work from where we agree. Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? She's saying life will be pointless if Jacob marries one of these women. You know how bad it's been with these two? Imagine if we add a third to the family. That's all she says. That's it. She knows how Isaac will respond. So what did Isaac do? He called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Okay, again, you can see the rift in this passage, even though you don't think you can. What does Isaac neglect to mention about Laban and Bethuel and all these people? What does he keep referring to them as? He keeps referring to them as his mother's family. Who else is related to these people? 
Isaac is. They're his cousins. They're Abraham's brother's children. Yet he refers to them as your mother's family. Why? Well, because Jacob is the mother's son, not his. So he refers to them with terms that relate to Jacob. This is your mother's family. Listen to this next passage, though. This is what has caused me to start thinking about the, the, the blessing, the original blessing we saw earlier. This is what's caused me to think that maybe the blessing for Esau all along was never going to be the promises, that maybe Isaac knew the oracle and knew it was intended for Jacob, because what he does here, after Jacob already stole the first blessing, what does he offer Jacob next as he leaves? He offers him the promises. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May He also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Here's the promises. The promises were offered to Jacob. Even after Jacob stole the blessing from Esau, the promises are still offered to Jacob here. It's the first time I thought this was studying this passage, but it's possible that Isaac will reserve that blessing for Esau because he knew there was a blessing already in store for Jacob. Jacob wasn't content to wait for this. Rebekah wasn't content to wait for this. They had to have the earlier blessing too. What I think... Well, let me finish the passage and I'll come back. Now... Here's the last note. Again, it's just reinforcing the conflict. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take to himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone, gone to Paddan Aram. So Isaac saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael, meaning that land, the peoples of Ishmael, and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. What is Esau doing? He's trying to rectify what he did earlier. Why would he go to the family of Ishmael specifically? Well, because they're related to Abraham. He had married two Hittites, two Canaanites, and they displeased his parents, and specifically what he cares about, displeased his father. So he went to marry someone from the tribe of Abraham because he thought that might please his father. It's sad. Esau's life is sad. But again, it reinforces the war between the two, right? They see what's, Esau sees what's going on with Jacob, and he wants to do it himself. Oh, I'm going to find a wife that, that will please my parents. 
like what they wanted, and I didn't know. Or at least maybe he didn't know. Maybe he did it rebelliously. I don't know. doesn't say. But what's key in this passage, what's so key to the story as we walk through Genesis is this. The blessing is irrevocable. It's on Jacob. The promises are going to go forward, and they're going to go forward with Jacob and not Esau. The prophecy, the oracle from the beginning of their birth, literally prior to their birth, told us that was the case. The older shall serve the younger. God knew this was going to happen. In fact, He told them it was going to happen. The promises are for Jacob. He let them know that. They're for Jacob. But, but I think, so in, in terms of the story of Genesis, that's what we know. The blessings are irrevocable and they're on Jacob and he's going to move forward in them. And we're going to follow him. We're going to see his story. We're going to see where God takes him. We're going to see the man he becomes. But I think what's overlooked And I think what's forgotten in this passage is the hell that is unleashed on this family because of human scheming. The promise was that the older shall serve the younger. That the promise was that this is going to happen for Jacob. Why didn't Jacob and Rebekah trust the Lord to make it come to pass? Why did they feel the need to force their hand to make it happen? It's the same mentality we saw with Sarah and Abraham in Genesis 16. The Lord's just not making it work. Here, have Hagar. Right? It's the same story. Different flavor, same story. How can we make sure that God's promise comes to pass? How can I make sure that it comes to pass? I've got a plan. I'm going to make it happen. What I think we forget, what I think we miss, and what I want to point out, and again, this would be different if I was speaking to a group of non-Christians, but I'm not. I know my, my audience. I'm speaking to Christians here. So I'm pulling different things from this story. And one thing I think of, as Christians, that we can recognize is human scheming is going to fail us. These are God's people. They can still scheme. They can still try to make God's promise come to pass in their own timing and in their own way and still try and manipulate situations to make them happen the way they think they should. What does it, what what ends up being wrought for them? What happens to them? I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, but but the reality is we're going to see over the next 10 weeks what, what comes because of this. What happens in Jacob's life because of this decision? Interestingly enough, Rebecca's plan, she's like, I, I did all this for you. I I made all this stuff happen. And listen, I'm just going to send you away for a few days. And then after you're gone for a few days, I'm going to send you back when your brother's less angry so that he doesn't kill you. Right? 
The plan's going to work out perfect. She's still convinced. You know what's interesting? About Rebecca's foolproof plan? Jacob got the blessing. She got what she wanted. How's it going to turn out for her? How's those few days turn out? You know how long Jacob's gone? 20 years. You know who never sees Jacob again in her lifetime? Rebecca. Never sees her son again. Why? Because she had a scheme. What is Jacob's life characterized by? Struggle. It's characterized by struggle. Jacob engages in this and he receives in return in spades what he's offered. What does Laban do to Jacob? He tricks him. And the trick Laban does on Jacob has lifelong consequences for him. Lifelong. He puts another woman in his bed on his wedding night. And all of a sudden, he's married to a woman that he does not love. Listen, it's not only Rebecca and Jacob that pay for their scheming. It's everyone around them. Look at Leah's life. Married to a man that does not love her. Who's also married to her sister. Who he does love. Can you, uh, I mean, any of you who are sisters out here. Think about the reality of sister jealousy normally. And then imagine if the man you loved was married also to your sister. Leah's life is hell. It's hell. And what's Rachel's life like? It's hell. Because she can't conceive. We'll get to that story too. But Jacob's life is defined by the deceit that happens here in this moment. Laban tricks him with Leah. Laban tricks him with the wages. He tricks him with the sheep. He's there for 20 years and his wages go back and forth. And then he's going to take the striped sheep. And then he's going to take the spotted sheep. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. For 20 years he deals with this. And then what happens when he has sons? The sons hate each other. Why? Because they're product of two sisters that hate each other. And guess what? The family line continues. And they all hate each other. And what do they do? What what do they sound like? They sound exactly like Jacob and Esau. Hey, let's kill Joseph. Let's get the dreamer. Let's throw him in a pit. Let's sell him into slavery. That's how they think about their brother. This passage, this mistake, this scheme unravels Jacob's life. And somehow, somehow I feel like we've so isolated this passage from the rest of Genesis that we often have been taught this passage and been like, look, isn't it cool that Jacob really values the blessing? He still got it. At what cost? The Lord had already told him it was his. He told his mother it would be his. But through his scheming, he undid his life. Because he didn't trust in the promise. He didn't trust that God would bring it to pass. He said, I've got to do it. I'm going to make it happen in my own terms and on my own way. And sure enough, he did it. 
Congrats, Jacob, you succeeded. And it undoes the rest of his life. I mean, Jacob's life is trauma to trauma to trauma. But, but, like I named this week, God's blessing and flawed vessels. God's blessing walks with Jacob. Somehow in the crazy double sister marriage, in the sons murdering each other or attempting to murder each other or selling each other into slavery, somehow in the, the killing of all the people of Shechem, remember the rape of Dinah, Dinah's raped and then Simeon and Levi go and murder an entire town and then they're like, hey, we, we paid justice because we murdered all these people and enslaved their kids. Aren't we good justice keepers? That's the level of insanity we're talking about in this family. Somehow, God is there in all of those situations. The blessing is moving forward. Jacob, despite all the crazy things I just mentioned, some of which you may not even remember, despite all that crazy stuff, Jacob still gets to pray to God on the, on the banks of the Jordan and say, if you walk with me and be my God, if you walk with me, I will claim you as my God. You'll be mine and, and I will be yours. He, and he goes out into the unknown land and then he, he has two camps when he returns he, and he meets God face to face and he wrestles with him. I mean, the highlights of Jacob's life, Jacob's ladder, he sees a stairway to heaven. Not like Led Zeppelin, but like <laughs> ladder to heaven. Is that Led Zeppelin? Am I right? I think it is. I think it is. My bad if I got that wrong. Rock history. My point is this. The highs are immeasurable too. <clears throat> Jacob has the experiences with God that in some ways no one else in Scripture can claim to have. And his people, these kids, these insane kids that he has, what do they become? They become the tribes of Israel. They become the nation. The nation that is God's inheritance. Can you fathom that out of this? God's blessing walks with the flawed vessels. So I guess it's my purpose with you tonight is twofold. One, I want to prevent you from scheming before you do it. <laughs> Don't scheme. Believe in the promise. Believe in the promise. God will bring it to pass. Don't force your hand. Don't make it your own way. Don't think that i got to fulfill the promise that he's told me and i got to make it happen because he's not doing it for me. Trust in the promise. Believe. Wait on it. Wait for God to fulfill it. I'm not saying be ignorant of it. I'm not saying be flippant about it. Of course you should pursue it in a way that's godly. But, but don't try and scheme to make it happen. But two, here's the second purpose I have tonight. If you've schemed, if you're scheming or have schemed or, or you're still seeing the fallout 
of the folly of your own choices, God's blessing walks with you. Still, even if you're living out the consequences of your poor choices, even choices that happened decades ago, like Jacob, for the Christian, God walks with them. Even in the midst of the fallout from decades-old problems, decades-old sins, God is there. His Spirit is in you and walks with you and among you. And He'll still bring the promise to pass. Somehow. I'm not saying that there are times that we lose things that God intended for us. I think that's true. I think we can. But I know from personal experience, sometimes you can lose something that you thought was everything you wanted. Everything you needed. Everything that God wanted you to have. And, and maybe you make a terrible choice and, and you lose it all. And somehow, in the mystery of God's blessing, the thing you end up with can be even better than what you would have had in the first place. Even with the mistake, God can make it better than it would have been if you had not made the mistake in the first place. How is that possible? I don't know. That's God. That's the power of God's blessing. He can supersede what you thought was the original plan. Just like Joseph. What, what this world, what you, what your family, what anyone could have intended for evil, God can intend for good. He can make good happen out of it. How is that fathomable? Well, at one level we serve a God that is too powerful to comprehend. Too good to understand. Too merciful to fathom. That's our God. So let's believe in the promise, like I've told you over and over and over again. Throughout this series, we've got to believe in the promise whether that's the ultimate promises of God, what He's promised His bride, His church, His world, or whether that's the promises God has offered you personally. It's things He's told you, things in the quiet of your heart that you've received from Him that He said, I have this promise for you. I will make it come to pass. Believe in them. Trust in them. Wait on God to move. Don't scheme to make it happen in your own design. Trust that God walks walks your paths. He walks before you. He walks behind you. He hems you in. The beautiful language of the Psalms. He's before and behind. He is everywhere with you. Remember that. Believe in the promise. We can wait on Him to move. Right? Let me turn it over to Tyler. <clears throat>